It is arguable that one of the great movies of all time is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, And if you haven't seen that, let me just give you a brief overview. Uh, There's a man in the movie uh, by the name of Andy Dufresne who is wrongly accused and sent to prison. And uh, there he he actually is really gifted with numbers. And that gift of numbers uh, earns him safety and protection from the warden and the guards. And so as he's in prison, he begins to make friends. And he makes friends with a guy named Red. Uh, Red is a longtime inmate, a guy who can get you stuff. And he becomes a good friend to Andy. And one day there's a scene where they're in the prison yard and they're talking. They're talking as men who are in prison. Uh, They are bound. Uh, They don't have freedom. And uh, Andy begins to ask Red if uh, he's ever thought about getting out, about what it would be like to be free. And Red's response is interesting. He says, you know, I've thought about it before. I've thought about that day when I'm old and my beard is long and white. And to be honest with you, I just don't know if there's much of a place out there for a guy like me. I mean, I'm a guy who can get you things in here, but out there, I just don't know if I have a lot of value. He, he really didn't quite know what to expect of freedom, didn't really quite value it. And, and at the same time, uh, you find Andy that is, is the complete opposite. Uh, he is a man who has been dreaming of freedom. In fact, he turns to Red and he says, oh, I, I can tell you it's going to be great. Uh, I have a little Mexican resort town in the Pacific Ocean by the name of Zuat Tanejo. And, and that place is where I'm going to spend my days owning a resort and taking people fishing on the vast free ocean. Those are the days that I long for. Well, I think when it comes to freedom, uh, we saw last week that Justin shared with us in verses 11 to 12 how the Christians had uh, this, this, declare, this declaration in the gospel of a freedom that had come to them. And that freedom that came to them actually set them at war against sin. In other words, the major enemy that they had, that they wanted freedom from, or they had received freedom from in the gospel at this point in redemptive history was sin, death, and the devil. That's why Jesus came to rescue the captives and set them free. But as we know, the, the Jews were a, a lot more like red. They, they didn't really have a clear vision of what it was that they needed to be freed from. They thought that their greatest need was to be freed from external political enemies like Rome. And so when Jesus came as the Christ, uh, one of the major reasons that they rejected him was that they thought that their greatest need was external. When Jesus came saying, no, your greatest need is something internal. It is your very heart and desire. But that leaves us with a question. If Jesus came to set us free, and he set us free from spiritual bondage, then what does that mean for our relationship with political governments, especially governments that don't always represent good or justice or fairness? How is it that we as free Christians are to live as citizens with dual citizenship? A citizenship that is in heaven and a citizenship that is on earth. Well, that's what we want to be thinking about today. We're back in our Hopeful Exile series in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, where the apostle Peter is writing to churches in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. Now, the question that Peter's going to seek to answer is this, how should Christians freed by the gospel, live as citizens of earth. Now, we saw last week in verses 11 to 12 that Paul tells a mostly Gentile Christian audience how to live amongst Gentiles. Now, that sounds a little bit strange to me. Telling a Gentile how they should live amongst 
Gentiles. I feel that would be kind of like me going up to LeBron James and saying, let me show you how a professional basketball player shoots a jump shot. Like, wait a minute, we are Gentiles and you're a Jew and who are you to tell me about how to do this thing that we're doing? But I think that what's happening here in these verses is that Peter is really beginning to unfold and zero in on more why Peter calls these people exiles and sojourners in their homeland. See, faith in Christ has changed the status and identity of these Gentiles to those who are truly and fully the people of God. Uh, They are those who could be known as those formerly known as Gentiles, but presently known as the the people of God. It's kind of like the artist Prince. I don't know if you remember, there was a time in his his artistry where he began to refer to himself as the artist formerly known as Prince. That used to be my identity. He says it's not anymore now. He never told us what it was. But here what we find is, is that these Gentiles are telling us that their identity has been fully changed and reshaped by the fact that they have been united with Christ. Now here's the connection that I believe Peter's getting at. You'll remember in Exodus that God redeemed or freed Israel out of slavery to Egypt by sending Moses to lead them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt into the desert where they wandered for 40 years as exiles and sojourners awaiting the entrance in the promised land. Well, the New Testament tells us that the first exodus was preparing the way for a second greater exodus led by one greater than Moses, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus has arrived. He has freed us from sin. He is our king and we are awaiting the fullness of the kingdom that is already coming. So the question here becomes, how do we live as citizens of heaven and of earth? That's what we want to talk about this morning. Now, our big idea is this. If you take notes, a great thing to write down. It's that the good news should make us good citizens here on earth. The good news, the gospel, it should make us good citizens here on earth. We're going to be thinking about that with Peter this morning. We'll begin first in verses 13 to 14, where Peter tells us that Christians should submit to government authorities, not worship them. Christians should submit to government authorities, not worship them. And here's what he says in verses 14, uh, 13 and 14 again. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, you'll notice verses 13 to 16 here that they center around this one imperative, be subject now, this is driving the content of the message this morning. And you'll see here that Peter tells these mostly Gentile Christians in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor that they need to be subject to every human institution. Now, take note of that word institution. I, I think that that's actually better translated creature. So actually, I think the original would say you need to be subject to every human creature. And I want to unpack why I think that matters. See, Peter's not saying here that we should be subject to every human creature flatly. That's chaos. Because we know this, we know this because he quickly, you'll notice, zeroes in on his focus on the emperor. Did you see that? Immediately. Be subject to every human creature, and then he goes straight to the emperor and those he sends out. So here's what I think's going on. Speaking on this text, uh, one scholar, Peter Ochtemeyer, he says this. 
He says that Peter emphasizing the humanity here of the emperor almost surely points to an increasing tendency, particularly evident in Asia Minor, to regard the emperor as divine. We know this historically, that some of the emperors actually invited worship to themselves as gods. It wasn't just in Rome. We see this elsewhere. Egypt, all kinds of civilizations saw this, where kings began to think of themselves as gods. Uh, And sometimes they said it out loud and built idols and stuff. So here I think Peter's doing a couple of things. First, he's highlighting the humanity of the emperor as a created creature. He's He's just highlighting that. He's not a god to be worshipped as some were doing and as some emperors claimed. So he's saying don't worship him. And second, submission to Christ, I think he's saying it's it's submitting to all legitimate political authorities. That's what submission to Christ looks like in real time. Now I say this because you'll notice in verse 14 that he includes emperor and he says the governors that they send. Now this is a general word for all delegated authorities that are high and low, not just governors like our governor Ducey. It's talking about all kinds of political positions like this in this vein. And so here he says all political authorities. See, Peter is employing a common description of leaders in general when he speaks of them and calls them good rulers in the the secular writings of his day, he would have seen this description of what they did. And and this is what good rulers look like when people talked about good rulers. They described them as those who punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And so Peter's saying, this is the general purpose of leaders. Now, I have a few ways I just want to think about this this morning. A few ways that I want to think about... uh, politics, the government. Um, You'd be surprised that we didn't actually plan this because midterm elections are this week. I actually planned this before I had any idea what like the political calendar would be like, but this is how expositional preaching works. God surprises you and makes you preach on things in uncomfortable times. But I wanted us to think through this um, in a few different ways, and I, I, would, I wish I could go deeper, but I want to make sure we at least have some sort of pillars set up to help us think through how we should think about ourselves as citizens of the United States and citizens of heaven. Uh, and so here's uh, the way I want to do it. I've got three points I want to think through uh, as far as application for this first point. First is this. We need to know that earthly government is common grace. Earthly government is common grace. Uh, You might remember a famous quote by the famed British uh, Prime Minister Winston Churchill who once said that, uh, speaking of our government, democracy is the worst form of government except for all other forms that have been tried from time to time. In other words, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen a clean system of government yet. But I think if you were to press him further, I think he would be honest and he would admit and agree that the absence of government It is even worse than all the other governments that he's experienced. In other words, at times in cultures when we found that there has been an absence of uh, some kind of government, some kind of leadership, things are worse, not better for it. Just consider Syria right now. Uh, the, the, The sort of chaos that has ensued from a lack of clear leadership has been horrible for the people of that nation. Government is generally an example of what we call God's common grace. Now by that... By common grace, I mean that all good comes from God. Did you know that? Like there's no other way to get good. Like there's not another source. It's not like you've got Target and Walmart and you can go like either to Target or Walmart to get good. Good only comes from God. That's the only place to go for good. Any good that you have in your life 
And all of its beams and, and all of its refractions, it all comes from God alone. And some good is even enjoyed by those uh, both who are saved and not saved. In other words, God's pervasive goodness. Uh, those even who deny God have to do so with breath that is simultaneously given them by God in that moment to actually deny him. That is a good gift of God himself. Uh, we are looking, living in a world that is full of good, good though it is broken. And Louis Burkhoff, speaking of common grace, uh, describes it this way. He says, it curbs the destructive power of sin and it maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe. In other words, though we are totally depraved, God in his infinite goodness has sought and seen fit to actually hold back how bad things could be by infusing us with the goodness of his character. Uh, Jesus points to this common grace in Matthew 5.45 where he speaks of the way that God sends rain on both the just and the unjust. That same rain that brings food and crops and delight. God also gives us governments to help prevent people from being as evil as they would be if they were allowed simply to do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And if you're wondering what that looks like, just read the book of Judges. So, one, we, we understand that government, in general, it's, it's, an, it's an evidence of God's common grace. But two, the authority of Christ trumps Trump and every other human authority. The authority of Christ trumps Trump and every human authority. Not showing any kind of preference for anybody. Just seemed clever. Now, this sounds a lot like Paul's command in Romans 13.1, where he says to be subject to the governing authorities. So if you're reading this, you might have immediately thought, oh, that sounds like Romans 13.1. I'm reminded of that text, and that's good. But while Paul there emphasizes authority as God-ordained, notice what Peter does here. He's doing something slightly different. He's actually highlighting that all leaders are still human. That's what he's focusing on. As J.C. Ryle once said, the best of men are only men at their very best. Still only human. That's the nature of humanity. And this means, I think, a couple of things. First, we should never obey any human who commands us to do something the Bible clearly prohibits. We should never obey anyone that asks us to do something the Bible clearly prohibits, whether it's a governor or it's any other adult or authority in our lives. Uh, God's word reigns supreme always. We, we see this in the life of Daniel when he was in exile in Babylon. Uh, you'll remember uh, whenever the king of Babylon commanded Daniel to worship him. Daniel said no. Likewise, we should also never obey any human who commands us not to do something the Bible clearly demands. Like when Babylon commanded Daniel not to pray, he prayed. Now maybe you've noticed in our own culture, things are kind of heating up, especially for Christians. We, we've seen this in a number of ways. Uh, you probably noticed in California recently, there was a, a bill that was really being passed around the internet that could in some ways limit the way that the ch- church can speak about a biblical understanding of human sexuality, uh, that they were going to actually pass a bill that could be used perhaps to make that a crime. Uh, you've probably also heard that there are those uh, who have sought to make it uh, legally um, uh, a necessity that any doctor has to be willing to perform an abortion. Uh, we have uh, another example that hits some of you guys. In fact, we have one member who at one point was reprimanded uh, by his authorities because he refused to use masculine pronouns for a girl in his class who wanted to be identified as a boy. And so we find that 
in the culture that we're in, like, can we just be honest? It is hard to discern how to glorify God by being obedient to him and understanding what the word of God says and how we can apply it and the difficult situations that our culture brings us to. Can, I mean, can we just admit that? It's hard. And so what do we do to, to, to be able to live in a culture like this? Well, I think that what we need to do is be more in the word of God. Because we need to make sure that as we are being convicted by the word of God, it's the word of God and not a wrong interpretation of the word of God that we're, we're following. We also need to make sure that we're not disobeying the word of God because we don't know the word of God well enough. We need to be in prayer because some of the wisdom that we need to discern some of these situations, we need wisdom from above because it's not easy. And then also, I think that we need the community of God. We need to be a place where people can honestly uh, explore and discuss how they can be obedient to Jesus without feeling like they're going to be judged. And we need to constantly point one another back to the word of God and seek to be faithful to God as we look to live as citizens in exile. Now, discerning how to obey leaders without worshiping and serving them above Christ is not easy. Um, It's also... Uh, sometimes really difficult when you look at the leaders that you have. Sometimes you can disdain them. Sometimes you can ask questions about them, questions or leadership. Uh, I don't know if this past week you um, heard uh, President Trump make a statement uh, where he said, when I can, I I try to tell the truth. And I just hung my head and I thought, that's my president. Now, Let's be fair, I've had this experience before his short tenure. I've had this experience with Barack Obama. Uh, He did some good things, and he did some things that were obviously questionable, as did George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George H. Bush. Um, Leaders, uh, as we have watched them, have failed. And I think it's easy. I think it's easy to think that we have the worst leaders ever sometime, uh, because we think that our hard situations are always harder than any other Christian that ever lived before. That's not true when we read the Bible. In fact, it's helpful to read the Bible and study church history to find out the nature of what others were going through. Don't forget that the symbol of Christianity is a cross created by Rome, not a couch created by Lazy Boy. It was an instrument created by a government to kill our Savior. And just a few years after Peter would write this, Rome would kill him and the Emperor Nero would begin to burn Christians as candles. See, God calls us to obey earthly authorities, but not to worship them. We worship Jesus as King of Kings. Every other president, legislator, chief justice, etc. They will only remind us that we need Jesus to come back. Do y'all know Jesus needs to come back and set things right? Do y'all understand that there's not going to be an election that's going to save us? It's going to be a return of Christ? Like we need to be reminded of that during political seasons. I think that's the main point of Fox News or MSNBC. It's, It's a gift of God to remind us to cry out, come Lord Jesus, come, right? Daily, they give you fresh content for that. Now, that's, that's their main point. So don't look to certain leaders or political parties and think that our future is in their hands ultimately. God is sovereign over sovereigns. Every sovereign is ultimately under the authority of God. And the freedoms that we have in America are evidences of God's grace. But third, third point about government, our citizenship in heaven takes priority over our citizenship on earth. Our citizenship on, in heaven takes priority over our citizenship on earth. You know, see, some, some who, you, who you talk to, and um, I, I, I've known, I grew up knowing a lot of people like this, they see Christianity as being basically as American as apple pie, right? If you're American, you're Christian. That's just kind of the, the way that you do it. In fact, some, if you, you go and you share the gospel in Africa, 
Uh, some want to become Christians because they think that if they are Christian like Americans are, they'll be rich like Americans are. It's because they see Christianity and, American, and, and being American being hand in hand. And some people talk like our social security numbers or our United States passport will actually be asked when we get to the pearly gates. Like, can you present those papers, please? Now, you've probably been to a God and Country festival on the 4th of July. If you haven't, I'm sorry. It's, it's an experience. Or you've heard a pastor like John Hagee who recently called our government to put God in his rightful place as Lord and King of this great nation as though the United States is Israel 2.0. Uh, and this is... This is more pervasive than you might think. Uh, a 2015 LifeWay study found that 54% of Americans believe that God has a special relationship with the U.S. as a nation, as though he loves us as he loved Israel. In fact, in that same study, a, thir- a third of atheists agreed. Now, that's a weird, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but God's kingdom is seen most clearly in the church. And we are aliens and exiles here on earth like Abraham who looked forward to the city that was made with foundations and whose designer and builder is God. And don't you desire to live in a better country, a heavenly one? That's the longing of the Christian heart. We don't want to get too comfortable here. But don't miss this. Peter says the best citizens will understand that their heavenly passport trumps their earthly one, and the United States is not the new covenant promised land. Now, we enter that kingdom, that kingdom that is the kingdom of the new covenant by faith. So if you're here and uh, you're not a believer, let me just tell you the gospel is good news that you have been made for a better place, a place with God. And the good news is is that we are are sinners. Uh, That's the truth of it. Uh, We have rebelled against God. We were enemies of God, deserving of his wrath. But because of Jesus Christ coming and living a perfectly obedient life for us and dying on the cross for the wrath that we deserved and being raised from the dead, he declared that anyone who puts their faith in him as king becomes part of his kingdom. Anyone who turns from living for this world to living for the world that is to come becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom never ends. You know, every other nation, great nation of the past uh, thus far, at some point has ended, except for present. Um, It was crazy at one point to think that Assyria would be no more. It was crazy at one point to think that anybody could ever defeat Babylon. It was crazy to think that Persia would ever come to an end. It was crazy to, and you can go on and on and on. But every kingdom will end according to the scriptures except one that is the kingdom of God. And that is the kingdom in which we put our hope. And so, friend, if you've not put your faith in Christ today, I want you to know that the future can be bright. Don't leave without talking to me about how you can become part of the people of God. And the kingdom of God is seen most clearly in the local church. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I don't really worship uh, kings and emperors and, and presidents. I don't even like them. But are there ways that we might be setting our hopes or affections on earthly authorities, even those we don't like, in a way that is controlling us and becoming idolatrous? Well, maybe when uh, you think about this, you should ask yourself some questions. So think about it this way. When you found out Trump won on the morning after the election and were surprised with CNN and everybody else, did you feel like life was over? Or did you feel like your hope in our nation was renewed? Or do you think that everything that Trump does is good or is bad? Do you think that Republican is the Christian party or Democrat or independent? 
You know, I, I recently had a friend of an evangelical church, a brother I love, who said that when they went through the last election, that he lost over 100 people in his church. 100 people because they just couldn't get along over political discussions. And so my question to you is, in that situation, which citizenship took priority? Was it citizenship in heaven, being bound by the blood of the Lamb, or was it the spar-spangled banner that was connecting them? See, I think that we need to understand that we have been made for another home that trumps every other citizenship. But there's a second thing that we see here. The purpose of submission is the display of the wisdom of God. The purpose of submission is the display of the wisdom of God in verse 15. Now, you'll notice in verse 15, Peter tells us the purpose of Christians submitting to government authorities, saying this. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, God's will is that Christians would be good citizens to the end that our good works would silence the ignorance of fools. Now, when you read that, if you're anything like me, you're like, man, fool is kind of like a mean word. It's like a a harsh word. Uh, I don't really, I don't think that's really a good engaging word if I'm talking to someone like who doesn't believe the same things that I, I believe. Um, for me, like I watched too much TV as a kid. So I'm always reminded of Mr. T from the A team who always would say, I pity the fool before he went and smashed somebody up. Right. But when you think about fool, I think we actually need to be thinking about this word, not like culturally or from TV, but actually from the Bible. And when you look at fool in the Bible, the Bible actually understands the the fool as someone uh, who is a kind of proverbial character, uh, someone whom we find like in Proverbs and here Peter sounds a lot like Solomon, who you'll remember in Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in other words, the fool is a description of the person who does not know the will of God, who does not seek the will of God, but someone who is happy to walk around towards their destruction. Now, what I think is happening here in verse 15 is Peter is saying that God's wisdom is actually on display, silencing the foolishness of men as Christians do good to others in government, making it a joy to lead and not a pain. Right? Like we, we give life to the things that we come to be part of. It doesn't mean we can affirm everything that happens, but we can affirm the good. Uh, we, can, we can question those things that are not healthy. And we can be life-giving in our relationships, not just in the church, but outside of the church. Now, I don't think that God merely desires his wisdom to be on display, though that would be enough. Because I I think that that Peter's saying something more. You'll remember that that verse 12 just happened, right? We can can forget verse 12 because that happened last week. But in verse 12, remember that he just told them to live honorable lives so that non-Christians may see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, I believe what Peter is saying here is that as they are going out and about living as good citizens, witnessing to the reason for their good works, and displaying God's wisdom with the hope that some will be caught up in the worship of God. Do you see it? There's this hope, not just that, oh man, I hope the city becomes like more efficient with their electricity, but that more people would see the light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The the wisdom on display is the power of the gospel that's happening out in culture as people are serving as witnesses of God. 
Now remember God told Jewish exiles in Babylon something similar in Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7, he told, God told the exiles there, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I mean, this sounds very similar to that Abrahamic calling to go and be a blessing to the nations. I will make you a blessing to the nations. And here, God's people have always been called to be a blessing to others. And Peter calls us to be a blessing in every sphere of life, including government, for its welfare to the end of it not being worshipped as God, but worshipping the one true God. Now, first, notice a couple of things here. First, notice that neither Peter nor Paul say being a good citizen is to the end that you transform the culture. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, hey, Christian, I want you to be a really good citizen, and I think things might just get so good that when I show up, not much will have to change. That's not what he says. Did you see that Peter says that you're a good citizen so that you might silence those who do not fear the Lord or are foolish and ignorant of the goodness of God and the future that awaits his people? Seek to do good. Trust is a Christian. Trust. Do this. Seek to do good. Trust that sometimes God can improve government by his grace. Sometimes he can. But ultimately, we know that things will get worse before they get better. The Bible tells us that. And so we need to be faithful. That's what God calls us to as Christians. But second, notice here another thing. See, I think this is the reason that we find the primary mission of the church is a proclamation of the gospel. See, I believe the unique and primary mission of the church is proclaiming the good news. Now, you hear the kids these days, uh, they'll come up to you and they'll say something like, you know, you're doing something weird. And they're like, that's okay, you do you. Like, everybody's thing is good. Like, you do you. Whatever you are, you do. And if you do something really weird and they say, that's okay, you do you, they're probably making fun of you and laughing at you. But you do you. But I think when we tell the church, you do you, what that means is proclaim the excellencies of the one who has delivered you out of darkness into his marvelous light. They need to hear. I have people doing all kinds of things. My grace is seen all over the planet. But the unique grace of special revelation and the proclamation of who God is and who Christ is and the power of the Spirit and who his people are and what the future is that awaits is given to you. Don't not do you. You hear it? Preach the gospel. Tell others about the greatness of Christ and their need for Christ. That is our unique mission this side of heaven. The church equips Christians to proclaim and live out the gospel wherever they are. Now, as citizens, that means that we need to pray for government leaders as we do each Sunday. We, you'll notice we're often praying for government and government leaders. It's because the Bible tells us to. We should vote. We should vote for those who, uh, as best we can tell, represent uh, morality that, that glorifies God. Uh, we also have a number of members in significant roles in politics here in our congregation, and we are grateful for that. And if that's you, you should know that that's a noble thing to give your life to, so far as you see it, as an opportunity to demonstrate the goodness of the good news. God has called us to these things. But there's a third thing that, Paul, that Peter tells us about uh, government in our text, and you find that in verse 16. Freedom leads to submission. Freedom leads to submission. Almost sounds like Peter's juking us here. He's talking about submit, submit, submit. And he says, because you're free. And so that's what he says here. And he gives, in verse 16, three descriptions of how we submit. Now notice what he says. He says, live 
as free people, or as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God. So what are the three things that describe the way that they submit? First, notice, as a people who are free. As a people who are free. Now, that might sound silly to you. Uh, Submit as a free person. I think we struggle to understand this for a a couple of reasons. There's a a contextual reason and there's a a contemporary reason that we struggle with this idea of submitting as free people. Uh, As far as context, Jews sought to be freed from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. But Jesus came first to deliver them from the greater enemy, their sinful hearts that were at enmity with God. And so they're struggling to understand what freedom in Christ meant for them when they were still under the authority of Rome. Now, we also have a contemporary struggle, a number of them. Uh, you'll notice that Phoenix is a city that prides herself on her independence, right? Like, I still remember I was, I think, in like my second week here, and I'm pretty sure I saw a 12-year-old with like, uh, I think it was a, a, I guess it was a pistol like, that was like half the size of his leg. Like in a, and it was open in like this carrier. And I'm like, I don't know if that's legal. I still don't know if that's legal. But I was like, people here love their guns, right? And their boots. And they would prefer you not tell them what to do because there might be trouble, right? We're an independent kind of people. That's just sort of the nature of who we are. We live in a country that values a number of things that go against the grain of what's being discussed here. We live in a culture that values antinomianism. Uh, that's really just like anti-law, no law. We don't like anybody telling us what to do, right? Um, in fact, I might want to do something, but if you tell me I have to do it, then I'll do something else. Uh, we also live in a culture that is not only anti-nomian or anti-law, but is anti-authoritarian. Uh, we don't like people to be in charge of us, telling us what to do. Uh, it's not something that we appreciate very much, and we are in a culture that is also hyper-individualized. Uh, so that we like to be seen for our uniquenesses. Uh, We want to be unique at all costs. And I think that colors the way that we define freedom whenever we see freedom. Those are the images that come to our mind. We don't get the images of freedom that we get necessarily from the Bible at first glance, but from the experiences that we have in our daily lives. So freedom for many of us simply means that we can do whatever we want without the hindrance of authority or consequences. But the Bible tells us That authority is good. Authority is good. And that freedom speaks uh, of freedom from something very specific when the Bible talks about freedom. Doesn't mean that now you can fly, right? That you don't have to worry about the laws of gravity. Uh, It's talking about a specific kind of freedom. So when you read the Bible, the Bible is speaking of freedom in a specific way. So when Paul says it is for freedom that you have been set free in Galatians 5.1. He is speaking of a people who have been freed that are no longer enslaved to sin and to the flesh, but have been freed up to be led by the Holy Spirit towards things that are good and the way that you are meant to live. Those freed from living for selfish desires should make the best citizens as those who look to do good for others. You know, it's hard to have like citizens or a citizenship or a government or an institution when nobody wants to serve each other, that's actually the opposite of an institution, right? When you do whatever you want, that's the individual, that's not the collective, that's not building something that lasts or that's meaningful. And the more, and as as we look at this, here's what's fascinating. Some Christians, I think, who discuss freedom in Christ, they talk about the freedom of self-expression. 
and self-indulgence instead of self-sacrifice. I want you to ask you this morning, when you think about how the Bible speaks of freedom, does your definition of freedom of Christ look more like freedom or bondage according to Paul's definition? If freedom in Christ means you don't have to pay taxes or go to church or give, but frees you up to drink more alcohol, you might be a slave to sin more than you know. And the more that you rattle your saber over your freedom, the more you may actually be praising your bondage. See, the Bible speaks of freedom as something very glorious and unique and distinct from what our culture would des- describe freedom as. But second, not using your... He says, uh, he says second is describing this submission, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. See, Peter gets to the heart of the matter here. Those freed from the slavery of sin shouldn't use freedom as a cover-up for evil. We shouldn't use freedom as an excuse not to do good that we ought to do as citizens. We we should not use freedom as an excuse to pursue selfish gain. So if we really understand the darkness of sin, we'd understand the beauty of freedom that comes with the gospel. That we don't have to sin anymore. That we don't have to be enslaved by sin anymore. That we don't have to be led around by our selfish desires, but we actually can be led around by a desire to do good for the glory of God of God. That wasn't always the case. In fact, if we really understand Jesus before Christ, what we're told is the story of another man, Adam. And Augustine, uh, speaking of Adam, said this of Adam that describes all of our story. He says, before the fall, Adam was actually able to sin. But after the fall, he was not able not to sin. That was what we were enslaved to, sin and death. But the gospel of Jesus Christ brought us freedom so that we don't have to live for sin and death anymore. We can have hope of a new life, a life with Christ, a life where we actually bless others rather than seeking to take from them. So if we understand freedom, we will hate sin and put sin to death because it's not good. Sin's not good. Third, as servants of God, we are called to submit as servants of God. Now here's where things get clear. The word for servants here could also be translated as slaves. So Peter says slaves, are God, uh, slaves of God are freed up to do good for others. Now in context it says that servants of God do good to their neighbor and even enemies and authority. Free people submit to different people in different ways. Slaves of God submit. See, Christians have been freed to submit to God. The future of one is life. Being a slave of God. The future of the other, being slavery to sin, is death. Which one do we choose? Well, in Christ, we choose life. But there's a fourth and last thing that we find in this text in verse 17. And here's where we see a glorious image of the fact that we were taken from thoughts of how we live generally as citizens on earth to what should take priority, which is our heavenly citizenship. Notice here that Peter ends saying that citizens of heaven share a closer bond than earthly citizens. Citizens of heaven share a closer bond than earthly citizens. Notice here that Peter ends with four imperatives describing how we ought to treat others. Now, it's interesting when you read about these verses, uh, people don't usually connect them very well, but I think it's actually a, a beautiful closing. Uh, he has one main like imperative in verse 15, subject yourselves or submit yourselves. And then you get to verse 17 and you have these four imperatives. Like it's the next place we see imperatives and they're all together. They're just really short. And you'll notice he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
And I think that these are actually powerful in the way that are arranged. Notice that at the beginning and the end, he begins with honor everyone. And then he ends and he says, honor the emperor. So we do obey the emperor. But when it comes to dignity and honor that he's talking about here in this verse, we treat everyone as those created in the image of God, along with all the dignity and worth that comes with that. Maybe you didn't realize this, but one of our biggest problems is not that we see people as merely human, but we don't really understand the glory of humanity and what God has done and created image bearers. In fact, that's one of the biggest parts of our sin is not treating people with the dignity and worth that God has created and invested them with. And so when we think about the nature of humanity, uh, we often don't think about people as much as we ought to. Uh, C.S. Lewis has said that if we could see a lowly Christian as he will be in glory, our temptation would be to fall down and worship him or her. So catch this. Peter not only elevates the status of all people, he also reaffirms the humanity of the emperor who receives no more honor than all people. Did you see that? Honor everyone, honor the emperor. It it is a sort of a a leveling out of the playing field saying he is a man, he is a human man. He, He deserves dignity because of his humanity, not because he is deity. Now some may have been tempted to treat the emperor as less than human and desired to revolt against him, and that would have been a correction for them. Some may have been tempted to worship him, that's a correction towards them. In fact, you'll remember that the Maccabean revolt was only a decade later Uh, where they tried to fight back against Rome. They failed. And others might have been tempted to bow the knee. But Peter says, honor him as an image bearer of God. Do not treat him less or more than human. But notice he also says two other things in the middle. He says, love the brotherhood. Now what's fascinating, this this word for brotherhood, uh, we only find it in 1 Peter. Tom Schreiner points that out in his uh, commentary. It's only found elsewhere in 1 Peter 5, 9. Now, I I like this term, brotherhood. He's talking about being good citizens. And then in the midst of this, reminds them of the greater calling to love the brotherhood. Honor everyone, right? And then he, he focuses especially on the brotherhood. And he says, love them. Show them a particular kind of self-sacrificing, self-sacrificial care. See, citizens of heaven here, what he says, are part of the family of God. Did you see it? We, we are part of a family of God in Christ, a brotherhood, a family that lasts forever. We're called not only to honor them, but to love them in particular and sacrificial ways. So let me just ask you this morning, would you say that your love for the brotherhood, especially in, in your local church, looks different than the way that you love and honor all people generally? How? Because I think that he's saying there should be a different way that you show care for the local church than you do those who are not Christians. See, this, this should be corporate in the way that you participate with your presence and your service and your giving. But I think it also should be about the way we treat individuals in the body. So how are you uniquely serving and loving the Christians around you? Is there a uniqueness that says, I'm a citizen of heaven and the way that you treat those Christians around you, and the way that you're loving them and caring for them. But notice also, he then says, fear God, again, honor the emperor. Of course, we know that living wisely in the world begins with the fear of the Lord. We saw that in Proverbs 1.7. And as John Owen says, for believers, this is a particular kind of fear that we give to the Lord. 
Uh, John Owen, writing about this, says that the, the fear that we have of God is like the fear of a good dad who disciplines the child that he loves. It's not like that kind of fear of a monster or tyrant who's going to come to do you harm. That's the kind of fear that we're called to have for the Lord. It's a kind of fear that actually shapes the way that we live. I've chosen to do this because of who dad is and because of what his standards are. That should be the thing that shapes us. Our lives should not be shaped by a fear of the emperor. We are to understand that he is merely man. That he does not ultimately hold our futures. That even if he takes this life, we know that our great hope is in the life to come. Notice that Peter says, fear God, not the emperor who is not God. See, our ultimate hope is in God, not country, not presidents. The leader that we long for will not be voted on. When Jesus comes, both presidents and citizens will bow down before King Jesus to give an account. Are you ready for that day? Let it come. Let's pray.